Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. It's so good to have you here uh, this morning. My name is Matthew. If we haven't met, um, the pastor here on the east side, and it's wonderful to have you here at church. Um, we'd love to help you get connected. Stick around for the newcomers event. Stop by the connecting table. We'd love to help you find your way into uh, life here. Um, I just want to just thank our worship team for creating such a beautiful space for us this morning to be with the Lord and to draw near and what a gift um, it is to have such talented people leading us every week into the presence of God. Um, I have a couple of uh, of things I want to uh, just a couple of quick announcements I want to make while I strike the stage. Um, the uh, um, the second one is going to be a little bit maybe maybe inappropriate for our youngest congregation members at the moment. I'm not going to say anything explicit. I just want you to be aware that I'm going to be talking about some heavy things, and so if you need to go to the bathroom. You have about 45 seconds. The first, um, the first uh, thing I want to let you know is uh, a number of uh, a number of people have asked. Uh, probably many more of you are curious. Are we uh, thinking about? Are we aware of the coronavirus um, and how it might potentially uh, impact programming here at Trinity, or what we might do about it? Uh, first of all, yes, we are aware of it. Um, our, our eyes are on it; it's on our radar. Um, and what we're doing is we're just trying to develop plans. Should we need to make any changes so that we can be responsive and avoid uh, the the avoid being reactive. We just want to have some things in place. All that to say, we're not making any changes at the moment, of course. Uh, it's uh, it's not an, an imminent risk for us, but we are just aware of it. Um, and if there are any changes that need to happen, changes to services or anything, we'll let you all know that through social media and through our email lists. So if you are taking a social media fast for Lent, you may just want to check in with the at least the Trinity account before you come to church some weeks and just make sure that there will be people there. Um, but, I mean, we're not planning on having to cancel anything. We just more wanted you to know that. I think it's important for us, to the best of our ability, to remain sort of just non-anxious and be people of peace in the midst of this. And there is a lot of fear, understandably, and um, people are scrambling in some ways. And yet I think moments like this just give us an opportunity to be distinct and marked and our ability to sort of be in the midst of something that's potentially scary and, and trust that it's in it's in good hands, um, that the Lord actually is going to be the Lord over it, uh, which doesn't mean that there aren't people in this very room that are afraid right now. And I just want to also say, if that's you, um, I think there's probably a number of us in here who can relate to you in that, that there's something uncontrollable about this and that we can be processing these things. You don't need to be afraid or ashamed of fear. Um, at the same time, we can be, uh, we can be sort of oh, like bearing that burden uh, with one another. Um, second thing I need to let you know about, and this is a, a, a bit uh, heavier, um, heavier than than a deadly virus sweeping across the world. Um, the um, if you you may not have heard, but last Saturday a, a news report broke that an internal independent investigation uh, that had gone on for multiple years discovered that Jean Vanier, who is a man who I have quoted fondly from this platform many times, and the revered founder of L'Arche, L'Arche, a community and an organization that we deeply love and support, that it was discovered that uh, Vanier had used his spiritual power to um, to prey on women who had come to him for spiritual direction uh, and had sexually and serially abused... Whoa, that's... Is that okay? Uh, it'll be fine. Uh, it's just petals. Um, 
Vanier had used his power as a spiritual director to serially sexually abuse uh, at least six different women over 35 years. None of those women were disabled, um, but all of them had come to him for, for, for guidance and counsel. And um, uh, anyway, uh, he died last year, so uh, he, of course, will face no immediate uh, consequences of this. But I wanted to say a couple of things about it. First of all, our commitment to L'Arche is 100% solid. We could not be more proud of our partnership with that organization, of the number of people in our own church who live at L'Arche or who work with L'Arche, um, the house that is just, I mean, like a stone's throw right there on Mead. We're so grateful for their community and the way they continue to humble us and show us what it looks like to live in a place where human dignity for all people uh, is upheld and celebrated and where people can live uh, shoulder to shoulder and, and create something that looks like the kingdom of heaven. And so we're very grateful for Lars. At the same time, uh, I think it's it's hard to it's hard to actually be surprised anymore. Uh, no matter how good a person is or appears to be, when you see a prominent leader or prominent Christian leader uh, fall, it's it's hard to say you're surprised. But I I will say, like at least in this instance, people who who knew Vanier, who thought that they knew him, um, really everyone who's revered him over the years. Uh, is utterly devastated and shocked, and this is a, a gross and outrageous thing that that he did. Um, it is it is utterly terrible and despicable, and um, there's nothing about it that's like has a saving like lining to it. It's just dark and the duplicitous duplicitousness of it, and um, the remarkably wicked incongruency between what he said about human dignity and what he did with power. Um, I think it should cause all of us in here to be uh, to tremble a little bit. Uh, that we live in a world that is this that is actually this dark. We live in a world that actually has this degree of of hiddenness and darkness, and that even the things that appear to be points of light on the earth are uh, are can can surprisingly and shockingly be actually the exact opposite. As we are in this Lenten season, we're focusing and thinking deeply about our own sin, the ways that our own hearts are duplicit, are, are, are duplicitous. And, and, um, and, and I think it's, it's, it's an opportunity for us to just collectively to have pity and mercy, uh, on, on, on Larsh, uh, to, to love them, to, they are our family, and also to, to, to just cry out to God for mercy, that He would have mercy on us and on His church and, and on this world, um, so we're going to read a pretty heavy text this morning. We're going to read from Romans 5, and then I'm going to preach a, um, a very, very hard text in, in a few minutes, apparently, and, um, and then we're going to eat together, and we're going to be, um, yeah, we're going to eat together. So Romans 5, as soon as I, I would have lost that sword drill. Okay, Romans 5, uh, beginning in verse... Uh, verse 12. Um, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, so death spread to all because all have sinned. Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned where there is no law. And yet death exercised dominion from Adam Adam to Moses, Moses being an embodiment of the law even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And the free gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin. 
For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. And if because of the one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, Just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's obedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That is the word of the Lord. And it is, thanks be to God, that is confusing. Let's pray. Lord, Thank you that your spirit is the one who uh, mediates. Your spirit is the one who interprets. Your spirit is the one who takes mysteries and sheds light on them and makes them known to us. And Lord, as we sit in this season, Lord, as we just sang, drifting among the ruins. uh, Lord, as we sit here with uh, soberness and somberness, Lord, as we sit here uh, in shadow. Uh, We are grateful that you are the one who brings light, and we ask for light. We ask for clarity and understanding. We pray that you would illuminate us and help us to see as you see. Help us to see ourselves and one another. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, it is a confusing text. There's no doubt about that. I mean, every time I read it, I'm just like, what? I mean, was there, was this, was this the clearest way? Um, what Paul, what Paul is doing though really is, I mean, he's, I mean, if you read it again and again, what you'll come to the conclusion of what he's doing is he's, he's just simply taking two things and he's just pitting them one against the other. Just as through Adam, through death, through sin, uh, disobedience, so through obedience, through Jesus, through life, so on and so forth. He's just taking two things. And so if we just take all the words and we just start putting them in buckets, what you end up with is actually a pretty simple, big idea that Paul is giving to you and me. And he's not simply trying to teach us complex theology here. He's trying to locate you and me in in the world or the story that you and I are living in. And that's a really important uh, it's a really important thing. Uh, Alistair McIntyre, the Scottish Catholic philosopher, famously said, uh, we have it on the screen, before I, can, um, before I can answer the question, what am I to do? I must first answer the question of what story do I find myself a part? That's really profound. Uh, and, and yet it's, it is, it is, uh, and it's not necessarily obvious to all of us, but all of us in here are living in a narrative The narrative is coming from multiple places. It was given to us by family of origin. It was given to us by the country we were raised in, all sorts of things. This narrative is guiding our values, our decisions, our priorities. It's guiding our economics. It's guiding all these things. And and McIntyre just simply says, I must simply come to grips with what is the story that I am living in. In other words, what is the narrative arc of history that I find myself a part of? What, What is the plot line? And before I can understand what am I supposed to do. And what Paul is doing in this this somewhat confusing and cluttered text is he is telling you and me what story you and I live in. 
And he's giving us essentially two, two big ideas. He's giving us a diagnosis about the world that we live in. And then he's showing us what the remedy is uh, through Jesus. And so that's going to be what we'd look at today. Just those two things. Um, the diagnosis. And then uh, at the end, the remedy. So first of all, the diagnosis. The diagnosis, according to Paul, is simply this. Every single person is sick. He says that just as through Adam sin entered, so through sin death has spread to all. Uh, so he is talking about sin in this text. Now sin is, as, uh, we, well, sin is a misalignment with what God desires things to be like. And so if you imagine like sin is an imbalance, it's missing the mark. It's, it's, whereas there is a, a perfect standard, uh, uh, a way that things are meant to work and function, just like there's a certain chemistry that your body requires, just as there are certain physical laws that the universe requires to continue in the way that it continues. There is a way things are meant to be, and then there is sin, which is missing that mark. And missing the mark is not a big deal if you're talking about an extra teaspoon of something in a recipe. Um, but when you're trying to thread a needle, when you're talking about something very precise and specific, a very small infraction, a very small area of misalignment can throw the entire thing off. And that's what sin is. It's just a good way to understand it. Sin is the world as it's not meant to be, but as it is. Sin is the sense that we all have, like things are, are skewed, things are broken, things aren't working the way that they're meant to. And the Bible says that's right. That's, that's what sin uh, that's what sin is. Now, typically in the West, we tend to think of sin in, in like judicial terms. We, this is just because of our, our heritage as Catholics and then as Protestants, as Reformed people, that, that sin is primarily understood in juridical terms. So we have a law, we break a law, and then we experience guilt. Paul is not talking about guilt in this. He's talking about something more forensic. He's saying that what's actually true about sin is that sin is the cause of death. Sin is the cause of sort of a universal and global sickness that has swept across the whole earth now. And that all of us, every person you've ever met, every person in this room, no matter how good a person appears on the surface, is infected with uh, this sickness. The thing is, is you and I don't actually really notice the sickness anymore because we've grown just so accustomed to it. C.S. Lewis uh, said, uh, we live in a human society in which minimum decency passes for heroic virtue. You know, like I pulled the person out of the car and we're like, what a hero. He says, really, this is minimum human decency. It passes for heroic virtue. Meanwhile, utter corruption passes for a pardonable imperfection. We all just say, ah, you know, that's, that's Jim. That's what Jim's like. We just like, we just pass, we just pass things over. And the thing is, is you and I don't even recognize that that is a deeply broken thing. Like the world as it is right now. We're not meant to live in a world in which cancer takes people out, takes children away from their parents. You and I are not meant to live in a world where human beings are bought and sold as property. You and I are not meant uh, to live in a world where our leaders ask the question, is this politically expedient? Is this a politically good move? We're meant to live in a world where our leaders ask, is this good? Not, is it politically good? You and I are not meant to live in a world where whole countries are trapped in po- poverty and where, where millions of people live in factory towns and, and live and sleep in workshops so that they can prop up the materialism of wealthier nations. That's not the world you and I are meant to live in, and yet it is the world that we live in. 
It is a world where people will use power to exploit and where those of us with strength will use it to harm those who are weaker. This is the world that we live in, and it's not the world we're supposed to be in. And we know it in our bones. I don't have to convince you of it. We know it in our bones it's not right. There's something wrong. There's something broken. Um, We don't actually notice, though, how pervasive the selfishness is in ourselves and all around us. Um, We just sort of skim across the surface of it. And only when something very extreme happens, some incredible or egregious act or some mass violence, then suddenly we wake up and we go, oh, this is wrong. This feels rattling. Um, The Eastern Orthodox have this uh, lovely way of understanding sin, um, lovely in the sense that I think it actually makes a lot of sense. They just call it ancestral, ancestral sin. It's not this idea of original sin, meaning like that the implications or the, the guilt of a previous generation is passed on, but rather the predisposition towards a certain flawed and broken way of living is passed on from one generation to another. In the same way that alcoholism follows a bloodline. That there's just this thing that is all the way back to the very beginning has just passed down to you and me today so that we find ourselves naturally, effortlessly predisposed to a certain way of being that is broken and misaligned, that is ultimately self-centered. Now, people tend to respond to this teaching uh, in one of two ways. First of all, people tend to say, uh, it is not as bad as you're making it. Uh, the church is so gloomy. Why, why are we, why are you having to focus on such evil things? And I, and you know, what, what about the resiliency of the human spirit? What about the incredible accomplishments uh, made through technology and science? And what about the fact that the world today is a remarkably better world than the world was, uh, say, 500 years ago for oppressed people? And, and, and those things are, are true in the sense that, like, the church does tend to be a bit fatalistic. Like, it is, like, we have had, it's actually where the whole, like, escapist theology has come from. This idea that, like, in the sweet by and by, one day, when this life is over, I'll fly away and God will burn the thing to the ground and good riddance to it. And who needs it anyway? And all the good people will be happy with grandma in the sky eating pie. And, like, that is actually, by the way, not a biblical teaching. It's a 150-year-old doctrine. And second of all, it is, it is not, it is not actually true. It's, it's not true. And yet it is true that the church has tended to be rather bleak in, in, in seeing only what's wrong with the world. I will also, though, just counter it a little bit. Um, if, if it seems like the world's not that broken or bad, we, we just should acknowledge that we live a relatively insulated life from human suffering. Like, I know that we have our share of suffering in the West, but when you consider that you and I have managed to live a life that is more comfortable and relaxed and has more extravagance and more margin than at any people in human history, um, we are able to just d- detach ourselves from suffering around the world. And we walk through wide open sunlit grocery aisles and we never think about the lives of the migrant workers who pick our produce Uh, we just are detached from human suffering there are many many places that you would go in the world today and if you said things are not as they are meant to be they would say of course we know that we have a luxury here in the west i'm not sure it's doing us any favors where we have managed to insulate ourselves from human suffering and how how dark and how hard and dark and, and bleak actually life is for many many people maybe even the majority of people in the world. Um, that's one way people respond to this. The second way people tend to respond to this teaching is, is they say, yes, of course it's very bad, but also like what else would you expect in a universe that is ultimately indifferent? in which there is no greater story or greater cause. There is no mover. There is no, there is no storyteller. It's just 
particles and chemistry and DNA. And as, as Richard Dawkins says, it is DNA and we dance to its music. We dance to the chaos. That's what it is. And we shouldn't be shocked that the world appears to hold all the properties of a place that has no real meaning or purpose behind it. And I'll just say, like, naturalism is a cogent, coherent worldview, and it is growing in its attraction to some people. I just will also say, of course I'll say this, it's not fair to try to deconstruct an entire cogent worldview in 30 seconds, but I will also just say that I I don't think that it makes sense for why you and I are bothered by the weakest and youngest and most vulnerable people being hurt. The way that micro, the way that biology and evolutionary works is that it is survival of the fittest. So when the slow and the weak get picked off in the herd, the herd becomes stronger. We should be glad when the weak ones among us are taken out if we're going to actually be consistent in this. But we aren't but we aren't glad. We're grieved, we're broken, we're shattered. Where is that coming from? This idea that actually it all matters, that there's some sort of justice that is that doesn't make sense in survival, but like sacrifice for the sake of someone weaker than you is actually a good thing. Where would that come from? Again, it's not fair to try to take apart something in in a few seconds. I just, I don't think that just saying, well, of course it's this way because that's what the universe is like and it's indifferent actually answers why you and I get so bothered. Why it is true that we are outraged by a person using their power to exploit and take, to, to steal the life and the dignity of a person. I don't know why we would care about that. It wasn't happening directly Uh, to me. Um, Not sure what that noise is. I think we're going to be okay. Um, Paul's diagnosis is very simple. He says, sin has abounded through Adam, and with sin has come death. The reason that sin leads to death is not because sin carries with it a direct punishment as much as sin is by its very nature, it is abusive. And what I mean by that is um, it is counter to nature. If the chemistry in your body begins to work in a way that is counter to its nature, if you have an autoimmune deficiency or disorder, like your body is actually harming itself, the biblical understanding of sin is that sin is by its very nature, it's counter to the way things are meant to be. That the death that is coming from sin is because it has actually gotten into the bloodline. It's gotten into the system. And everything is, man, is mal, malfunctioning now. And so death is spread to all. And so now Paul says we live under the reign of death. We exist under the undeniable and inescapable reality that sin and death have infected creation. And that we can't do anything about it. Certainly some of you right now are wishing you were a son in my belly. Instead of here. Um, Because brunch is better than that idea. Um, There is a grimness to this. I think it's realistic. And yet I think it is understandably grim. But the whole point of giving information like this. The Bible is letting us know. What is the world that you and I live in? Remember. I cannot answer the question. What am I to do? Unless I'm first able to answer. Of what story am I a part? And so Paul brings us into the full story. He says, it is true. These things, just as through Adam, just as through Adam, just as through disobedience, just as through sin. So now, 
the language he uses again and again is just as this, so now through Jesus and through the one man's obedience and through the one man's act of faithfulness, through these things, now the word he says is these things have superabounded. Life has superabounded and forgiveness is superabounded. So he's like, just as through sin, death abounds, now through Jesus Christ, life superabounds. In other words, Paul is saying there is a remedy to this. The remedy has already come, and you and I are now living in that age. Now, if you were a Jew in the first century, and actually still many Jews in the world today, there is a belief that there is the, the, the human history has essentially two ages. There is the pre-Messianic age, and then there is the age after Messiah comes. So before, before Messiah, it's, it's chaos and destruction and judgment but with the Messiah is going to come rightness and justice and righteousness and all the things that you would want. The sort of world you'd want to live in. A balanced world, a fair world. Um, and yet before Messiah, everything is kind of as it is right now. And what Paul is saying is that we, they were, we're, our thinking is wrong about this. The brokenness continues on, but something has happened in Jesus. Something has happened in the appearance of Jesus that has now altered the, the ultimate trajectory and continues to now run simultaneously like two storylines that are going on. And you and I are living in that moment right now, in that uh, age. So we don't have to wait for Messiah to come. He's already come. But now that we live in this, now we live in the juxtaposition of these two ages. We still live in a world in which things are not as they're meant to be. But we also live in a world in which the other kingdom, in which the knowledge of God that covers the earth, in which love and joy and peace and peacemaking can reign simultaneously. That, that could be a comforting thought perhaps, but it, 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 what it does for me is it fails to answer the question of like, okay, but so what? If we do live in a world that, uh, is deeply broken and deeply flawed, if we do live in a world where people are exploited and taken advantage of and where the innocent suffer, if we do live in a world like that, then what is the, the benefit maybe of, of trying to say, but there's this other, there's this other storyline also going on. There's this other thing happening under the ground. Um, where the kingdom of God is advancing, invisibly, albeit, but but slowly advancing. Like, what is the what is the benefit? What is the benefit of that? Um, well, Paul goes on in the very next chapter to say something that's I, I think is is in some ways the benefit of it, and it's this. He says, "Therefore, since these things are true, I want you." All right, look at me for a second. He says, "I want you to consider yourself." Dead to sin, because sin no longer has any dominion over you. You are dead to sin, so sin has no dominion over you. He says, therefore, since it is true that we now live in an age in which through Jesus, life is abounding and superabounding, sin has no power over you. To which I just would ask, does that feel true to you? It's rhetorical. You don't have to answer. Does that feel true to you? That sin has no power over you? And one of the things that uh, I probably have just carried around in my Christianity for a long time, and slowly it's being chipped away at by the Holy Spirit, is this sense of resignation that I'm like never actually really going to change. Does that make sense to anyone? 
that like there's like a part of me, like a really core part of me that's never actually really going to grow. That there are just some areas where I will never feel free. Does that feel true to anyone in here? And Paul is giving us at least a very strong argument that that doesn't have to be true for you and me. He is saying it is possible that the things that are within you right now that feel broken or misaligned or not the way you want it to be, not the way it should be, the things that in our confession, as we just did together, as we lament and confess our sins with one another, we can say, these things are broken in me right now. He's, he's looking at you and me square in the face and he's saying, you don't have to continue in these things. There's this beautiful story from John 11 where uh, John, uh, Jesus' friend Lazarus dies and, and Lazarus is buried. He's wrapped in grave clothes and buried. And three or four days later, Jesus shows up at the tomb in Bethany. And it says that as he gets to the tomb, everyone's grieving and, and weeping. And Jesus gets very, very angry. The word in Greek is like a deep, like grief-ridden anger. He's, he's like furious and, and, his, and, and sobbing. And it's like, well, what is he angry about? Well, I, I don't think it's simply that, oh, I'm so mad my friend died and I wasn't here. Actually, he... He intentionally doesn't go in time. You can read the story yourself. Why is he angry? He's angry because this is not the world as it's meant to be, and he knows it. It's not the world as it's meant to be because he created it differently, and yet it is the world as it is. And so he's experiencing that deep, guttural angst that you and I feel, but we don't have a way to voice it. And because we're good Southern Westerners, we don't. We just push it down, and we smile, and we say everything's fine. But that sense that things aren't the way they're meant to be, and Jesus is just, you know, he's free. He's he's Middle Eastern. He can just express it. It's beautiful. He's, he's angry and sad and sobbing and and grief-ridden, and he says, roll the stone away. And it says in the new King, in the King James, but Lord, it will stinketh, it says in the King James. It literally says that. They roll the stone away, and he says, Lazarus, come out. And the man rises from the dead. His heart sparks to life. He begins to breathe for the first time in nearly a week, and he walks out of a tomb. And he's covered in grave clothes. He looks like a mummy. And Jesus says to him, take those grave clothes off of him. Why? Because it makes no sense for living people to continue on in the clothes of the dead. Because it makes no sense for you and me to continue on in the actions and the behaviors and the practices of people once we have been brought to life. And there is this potential, I just think the spirit maybe just has like, if there's like a word for, for me and for you, especially in this Lenten season, as stuff gets stirred up and sin gets opened up and exposed, this word from the Lord is, is just pushing against this idea of resignation, pushing against this like, it'll always be this way, there's nothing I can do. It's like, no, no, there, there is something that has happened that is monumental. It does redefine the story for you and you can, if you want, you can lay hold of it. You can be different. Uh, as John Steinbeck says it in East of Eden, a book everyone should read, uh, he says simply, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to consume you, but thou mayest overcome. You may overcome. You could. You don't have to give into it forever. It doesn't have to be the final word. There is something that's happened that's more powerful than the power that holds you. It has broken the back of it. 
And so we are free, if we want, to take off the grave clothes. To live a different life. Why don't we stand up together? Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. I'm Matthew Brown, the parish pastor here at Trinity in Decatur. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ-likeness. And you can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting our website, atltrinity.org. Thank you so much. God bless you. Have a great week.